Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also in, are in the body. Let's tune in our hearts this morning to understand how we can more effectively remember those in prison as if we were with them. Let's turn our hearts to those in whom Jesus lives and in whom Jesus suffers that we might bless our Lord by caring for his persecuted bride. Please welcome Will Stark. As Pastor Albert said, my name is William Stark. I am the regional manager for South Asia at International Christian Concern. I've held this post for the past five years. And I wanted to start today by sharing a bit of a confession with you guys. We're in church. It's a good time to confess things. Um, my confession to you is that I am not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. So actually the pulpit is something that I find to be quite nerve-wracking and intimidating to me. As opposed to what I actually do, I'm actually a field worker. I travel to places like Iraq and Afghanistan. I find that just totally fine. The pulpit... It's a little spooky. I was talking to my wife on the way up here, and I was telling her that I felt that way, and she said, you know you're crazy, right? So, but as a, as a regional manager at International Christian Concern, my job is to daily work with and communicate with the persecuted church around the world. Now, this can look like a lot of different things from day to day. Some days I spend my time raising awareness about a particular issue of persecution affecting Christians in a far-off area like India. There are other days where I'll actually spend my entire day designing and implementing a relief project for those who have been affected by persecution in some way. There's even other days where I actually go up to the Capitol building and I spend my entire day briefing government officials on how our policy, our foreign policy, can better affect the persecuted church around the world. But one of the larger parts of my job is actually traveling around the world to bear witness to and to be with the persecuted church wherever it's happening. As Pastor Albert shared, I've been to a lot of places where persecution is a really difficult difficult issue for the people living there or the Christian church living there. In my time at International Christian Concern, I've been able to travel to places like India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Egypt, Ethiopia, Kenya, Nigeria. This year, my plan hopefully Lord willing, is to travel to Iraq, to travel to Pakistan and Afghanistan, and also Vietnam. I am still seeking permission from my wife, so if you guys see her at any point today, just say, you know, you really need to let Will go and just serve the persecuted church. Um, in the process of all this traveling and all this interaction with the persecuted church, I've actually been able to to learn a lot of foundational things about my own spirituality and my own faith through their reflection of Christ. And before we go forward into kind of the lessons that I've actually learned from the persecuted church, I wanted to take a step back and define what is persecution. I think a lot of us are very can very easily identify persecution, oh, that was persecution, or that happened and that's persecution. But I don't think a lot of us have a working definition of what is persecution. Um, at International Christian Concern, we define persecution as a time or an instance when a Christian faces hostility or ill treatment due to their faith identity and or their faith activity. This can obviously slide on a scale of severity quite a bit, I've seen instances of persecution where a church is targeted by a suicide bomber. It's blown up. That would be, you know, on the high end of the severity scale. But also where laws and regulations are used 
so that it makes it impossible for a group of believers to actually build a church in an area. That's one of the biggest issues facing the church in Indonesia today. They can't actually build a church because they can't fulfill the regulations in order to build one. Now, when I started at International Christian Concern five years ago, when I would say the term persecution to someone, especially within the church itself, I'd often get this, you know, blank stare, like, huh? What, what is that? What is persecution? Um, nowadays, we don't have that as much, unfortunately or fortunately, due to the news coverage of groups like ISIS and Boko Haram, more and more people are becoming, more and more members of the church are becoming aware of the persecuted church globally. Um, this still... This is still this is a good thing that we're becoming more aware of it, but I still think that many in the church are not fully aware of how pervasive and how severe the problem of persecution is globally. Um, the truth of the matter is, and I, hopefully you guys will find this shocking, is that us here sitting in this church freely, exercising our faith without you know any concern that when we walk outside something's going to happen to us, we are probably actually in the minority of Christians around the world. Um, the Pew Research Center actually found that 75% of the world's population live in countries where their faith is severely restricted by the government. This includes 60 countries where Christians actually are actively persecuted by their government and or neighbors because of their faith. This means literally right now at this moment, Hundreds of millions of Christians are facing persecution because of their faith, putting us likely in the minority of Christians around the world. And with this, you know, this context that we here worshiping this morning are probably in the minority of Christians globally, I wanted to pose you guys a question. And here, here's that question. What can we learn or can we learn from the persecuted church? Now, this kind of goes to the character of the persecuted church. How do we view the persecuted church? What are they? Um, and there's kind of two categories that I often see people put the persecuted church into. One, they're a mass of faceless victims to be pitied by us here, the free church. Or two, they're actually our brothers and sisters in Christ, members of the same body, as Paul puts it, who are worthy to be known and can be learned from. And honestly, my experience over the past five years traveling to all these different countries, meeting with Christians from around the world, truly the latter is actually what I've found to be the truth. That the persecuted church has actually taught me some of the longest lasting and most foundational, um, most foundational lessons about my own faith and the God that I actually worship. But now to, to kind of bring that lesson home, I actually wanted to read a part of scripture here, and then compare it to a interview that I did earlier this year in April with a persecuted Christian, which I think will actually be a really interesting comparison. The scripture verse that I would like to read this morning is Acts 16, verses 16 through 34. This is, again, we're going kind of back to the first generation of, ch of the church with Paul and Silas going out and spreading, spreading Christianity on their missionary journeys. And we find them in the city of Philippi, where we pick up the story here. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, 
having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrate tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received his order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and, be, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were, with, on all who were in his house. And he took them to the same hour that night to wash their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, this passage sometimes, when we, when we think about it or we read it, it kind of seems far away a little bit. You know, God breaking open the prison doors and stuff. And it often brings a question to me, does this still happen today? And my experience with the persecuted church has actually proven to me that this sort of stuff still happens today. But before we go into that story and the story that I actually want to use as a comparison, I want to point out kind of two things that this story with Paul and Silas actually surprised me. The first thing that surprises me or the first thing that really uplifts my faith when I read this story is that Paul and Silas, as they are sitting in the innermost room with their feet in stocks, they've been beaten with rods, they've been torn naked in public, they're still singing hymns and worshiping God. It, honestly, that, that must be a very difficult thing to do. I've seen many Christians do it in my experience with the persecuted church, but for me, I feel like that would be quite a challenge. And it really shows the maturity and the faith that Paul and Silas had in the message that they were bringing to these areas, to Philippi. The second thing that I always find so surprising about this story is the love that they showed to what you could really term as their enemy, the persecutor, the jailer. So, you know, you're sitting in prison, you've got your legs in stocks, you've been beaten, earthquake happens, breaks open the doors, breaks off your chains. If it's me, I'm taking that as a sign from God, and I am moving out of there as fast as I can. But Paul and Silas actually took the time, and to love someone, it takes time. They actually took the time to consider what would happen to their enemy, the jailer, who had put them in the, in the stocks, who put them in the innermost room. And they considered what would happen to him if they did actually all escape. So they actually stayed. 
And when they saw that the jailer had seen what had happened and pulled out his sword to kill himself, they called out to him and they said, do not harm yourself, we are all still here. This act of love and in this moment actually reached to this jailer's heart, likely someone who may have participated in the beating of these two guys, and actually broke through to him and actually claimed his soul that night for the kingdom of God. And that's a really amazing testimony. And now I actually want to take this story with those two kind of points drawn out, and I want to compare it to an interview that I did with a persecuted Christian earlier this year. Now, to fully understand what we're going to talk about, we're going to have to go back a little bit. And don't worry, we're not going back 2,000 years. We're only going back to 2008. Most of us were around during that time. We're going back to August 2008. And we're going to one of the least developed districts of one of India's least developed states in the northeast of the country along the coast with the, with the Indian Ocean. Um, the location that we're going to is Kandamal, India. It's the Kandamal district of India's Odisha state. Now, in the Kandamal district, Christianity in 2007 and leading up into August 2008 was actually exploding amongst the tribal and the rural population. This became a very concerning thing to the Hindu nationalists who believe that to convert from Hinduism to some other religion is somehow treason against the country together. And ultimately, it became so concerning to some of these Hindu nationalist groups that they sent a radical Hindu priest to this area with a gang of people, and they went from village to village using threats, using intimidation, and sometimes physical assault to forcibly convert Christians to Hinduism. Obviously, this put quite a bit of tension between the Christian population of this area and the radical Hindu nationalists that were operating there. And then, on August 24, 2008... This, this Hindu priest and several of his closest followers were actually found assassinated at his, at his asaram, which is a local, it's a retreat that many Hindu priests actually use to go and, and recenter themselves. Immediately, the Christians of this area were blamed for the murder of this Hindu priest, and it unleashed three months of anti-Christian riots that have been termed and are still defined as the worst instance of Christian persecution in India's independent history, period. From August to October, mobs of Hindu radicals traveled from village to village within this district, seeking Christians to punish and Christian properties and churches to destroy. When the Indian army was actually able to retake control of the district, already 300 Christians had been murdered, 5,600 Christian homes had been burned to the ground, 350 churches had either been burned or desecrated, and over 56,000 people had been displaced and were living in relief camps. In the midst of this violence, as it was ongoing in, in the Kandamal district, Maoist rebels who actually are operating in that area, they're called, they term themselves as Naxalites, they actually took credit for the murder in writing. They said, we are the ones who killed this priest. This was ignored and is still ignored today. And it's actually been proven at this point that these Naxalites were the ones behind the murder. Still, there was already an agenda to try to drive Christianity out of the Kandamal district. Um, in fact, the, the, these mobs of Hindu radicals started putting so much pressure on the local authorities to arrest the Christian assassins that the local authorities eventually gave in and arrested seven Christian men 
and charge them with the murder of this priest and his followers. I've actually been able to meet with and talk to all seven of these Christian you know, men's families and really kind of research the background of their arrest, what happened, who knew what, when. And it seems that all of these guys were pretty much arrested at random. I think these guys are charged with conspiring to kill this leader of a Hindu movement. Most of them didn't even know each other before they were actually arrested and brought to the courthouse. The first time they met one another was when they were put in the courthouse and charged with this murder. After five years of delay, in 2013, these five men were actually convicted and sentenced to life in prison for a murder that they did not commit. That they did, that they did not commit. And that's as bad as you can get. We've got this huge context of the worst instance of persecution happening in India in its history. And then you have these seven men who are caught in the middle of it and unjustly accused of a crime because of their Christian faith. And they're serving in prison. This April, after spending eight years in prison, one of the seven men, his name is Gurunath Nayak, he was actually released on bail for a single month in April to visit with his father who was dying and was, you know, he was going to die. And the Indian penal system can be quite strange sometimes. You can actually get bereavement bail for a month, a temporary stay. You get to leave jail, stay with your family for a month, and they'll let that happen for marriages and also for when one of your family members is dying. I was actually traveling in India at the time when I heard that Gurunath was going to be out of prison, and I wanted to take advantage of that situation so I could actually meet with him, sit down, talk to him about what is it like to be you, what is going on, how can my organization actually step in and help you some way. And like any good interviewer, I had actually prepared a whole list of questions for Gurunath to write the story that I thought I was going to find. I was, gonna, I was asking him questions, or I was preparing questions about the terrible prison conditions that he found himself in. We're not talking about American prison here. We are talking about rural India prison. There is not a lot of facilities for these guys in this jail. Most of these guys, they depend upon their families to bring them food, to bring them water, to bring them any hygienic thing to survive in this prison. So I wanted to, to ask him about that. What is he going through with, with, the, with the prison conditions? I also wanted to ask him about the emotional trauma of being separated from his family for the past eight years. That would be, you know, you didn't commit this crime. You've been taken away pretty much at random. And you've been gone for the last eight years watching your children grow up from behind bars. The other thing I wanted to focus on was the total injustice of the situation Gurunath found himself in. I mean, this is one of the most unjust things I've seen and I've worked with in my years at ICC, and I wanted to really fixate upon that with this interview. And as you guys all know, when God gets involved and reveals his plans to us, and in this case me, he can make your own plans and the plans of man look real foolish. <laughs> so as I, as I prepared and I went into this interview with Gurunath, I sat down with him. And as I sat across from him in the interview, the first thing that I noticed from Gurunath was this big, goofy smile. And I'm like, what is going on? And the, at first, I was like, okay, he's a rural Indian. I'm from the United States. I'm a foreigner. I'm coming to his house. He's just excited because possibly, you know, this is he sees this as a ticket out there. So I just kind of put it aside and I said, okay, we got this smile going on here. 
As we went through the interview, this smile remained. It was just so distracting for me. We were talking about the prison conditions and how terrible, oh yes, yes, they're so terrible. We don't eat anything ever. And it's just, it's a really terrible thing. But this smile stayed there. It's like, oh, what's going on? And as we talked about being separated from his family, yes, he became upset, but the smile remained. I'm like, Gurnoth, come on, what's happening here? <laughs> and I asked him about the injustice, and he is fully aware of the injustice of the situation he finds himself in, and yet this smile was still on his face. I had to stop the interview halfway through because it was so distracting to me, and I had to ask him, why are you smiling? Gurnoth, you got to explain yourself to me. And honestly, his answer reflected the kind of faith and grace that Paul and Silas showed in our, in our scripture reading. And I actually wrote down some of the direct quotes that, that Gurunath told me. He started by telling me, My imprisonment has forever changed my parents, who were Hindus and did not approve of my conversion. During these past days, while I've been at home, both my parents have professed faith in Jesus. You know, that, it's a really powerful testimony to hear that. But that's not where it ends. Gornath continued by telling me, I'm not worried about going back to prison. Myself and the seven other Christians, we continue to hold daily devotions and do a Bible study together. Again, kind of reflecting that Paul and Silas in the innermost room, in the stocks, actually continuing to worship. But still... Gurunath took it to the next level again. He went on to say, We are jailed with many of the men accused of taking part in the 2008 riots, the men that were attacking these villages, village after village, killing Christians, destroying their homes, destroying the churches, and we've even shared the gospel with them. Six of them have converted to Christianity and now attend our daily devotions every day. Gurunath ended by saying, in spite of the challenges I face, I thank God for turning my mourning into dancing. I will go back to the jail, putting my faith in his hands, because I do believe that God will help and that all seven of us will eventually be proven innocent. But for now, this is where God wants me. Needless to say... Needless to say, even reading this, this testimony today, I'm still in absolute awe of Gurunath and these, these six other men as they sit in prison, you know, separated from their families in just these really terrible conditions. Instead, you know, if anybody has a reason to be resentful, to be angry, to be bitter, it's Gurunath. He's been in this prison for eight years on a charge he didn't do. But he's continued. He has doubled down on his faith. And he is reflecting the love and the hope of Jesus in the worst of circumstances. And that is bearing fruit for the kingdom. And it's not just bearing any fruit for the kingdom. It's reaching out to the souls of men who had previously been a part of mobs who had gone around and destroyed the Christian community that Gornath came from. Sitting there with Gurunath, and even today, I'm immediately reminded of a passage in Romans, Romans 8, verse 28, where Paul says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called to his purpose. That verse rings true for Paul and Silas 2,000 years ago. It rings true for, for Gurunath in April, when I talked to him last as he was going back to prison. And as I close, as I close my message, and as I 
kind of try to wrap things up and with all of these things in mind, I wanted to take a step back and ask, what are the practical lessons that we can learn from the persecuted church and from persecuted Christians like Gurunath? And I've kind of broken them down into to three lessons. I know it's, it's a sermon, so we have to have three points somewhere. So here, here are the three points or the three lessons that I would like to share from Gurunath and from persecuted church. First, the persecuted church are our brothers and sisters, and they are worthy to be known they're worthy to be prayed for, they're worthy to be served, and not just pitied. Second, God is consistently revealing himself and his glory through the persecuted church when his followers are able to exhibit the faith faith in his sovereignty. And then finally, and this is honestly the hardest one, in spite of the persecution, we are called to love those who persecute us. That is what sets us apart. They will know that we are Christians by our love. And that's a statement that said not just, you know, when things are great, you know, they'll know we're Christians by, you know, the way that we love. It's also when terrible things are happening to us like Guranath. He is still able to reflect Christ's love to the men who are likely destroying his community. And that God is working through that love to reclaim these men's souls, to bring them back to his kingdom. And that's something that we need to remember as we think about the persecuted church. It's very easy to make the persecutors our enemy, but they're not. Often the the persecutors of the church are amongst the most unreached people on on the planet. If we think about ISIS, we think about what's going on in the Middle East. The Muslim world is the most unreached people on the planet today. We are called to love them, and we are called to reach out to them. So as, as I close today, I'd like to challenge you guys to two things. So not three challenges, just two. And don't worry, they're not too hard. The first challenge that I'd like to share with you guys today is to take stock, meditate on the fact that we likely here as Christians in the West are in the minority. We are the minority, the free church here to exercise our faith without any trouble coming our way. The second challenge, and this this one may be a little bit harder, is I would challenge you to accept the opportunity to serve your persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. This can look like anything. You could, you know, just decide to pray. Pray for the persecuted church today as it's International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted. You could sign a petition. We have a couple of petitions online right now. One of them is for four pastors that are imprisoned in Sudan right now. You could go onto our website and sign the petitions so that our organization can bring that to different offices within the State Department and the House of Representatives and the Senate to say this is an issue that we care about and we want these guys to be released. You can also, you know, show your service to the persecuted church by looking to partner with organizations like ICC or other organizations that serve the persecuted church. And one of the things that I always say that is an opportunity for us with with persecution especially, is just knowing, knowing the persecution and being aware of it. I, I go to some very rural places. I go to Afghanistan. A lot of people aren't aware that there's an underground church movement in Afghanistan. The man who actually leads it is 29 years old. He and I are the same age. We started working together when we were both 25. These And he is fully aware that he is not known by the broader world, and that's something that's really hard for him. We're meant to be this one body. We're meant to suffer with each other, and 
Luke honestly knows that most people don't know him. So just knowing the persecuted church is definitely a great first way that we could get involved with with them. And now to close, I'd like to take one of these practical steps and, and actually pray for the persecuted. It's, it seems like a good day to pray for the persecuted since it's the International Day of Prayer for them. So if you'd all bow your heads with me, we'll say a quick, a quick prayer to, the, to God for the church.